I want to read you a press release. It's dated March 11th, just about a week before the war that has been recently declared. His Holiness Maharishi Mahesh Yogi has proclaimed his global efforts to establish 3,000 peace centers in the world's largest 3,000 cities. His claim is it will crown humanity with its rightful destiny to live in permanent peace. Construction is to begin within a few months. Each peace palace will be the home to 100 to 200 peace-creating experts. The Maharishi says the results of this will be a prevention-oriented, problem-free administration in every country. Then every government will be supremely successful. No one will suffer in any way whatsoever. Life will be a blissful play and not a field of suffering. That sounds great, doesn't it? World peace, blissful play, no suffering. But then we wake up from the dream and realize, oh, we're in a war again. Now, you just heard briefly at the tail end of that video that 1970s song by Edwin Starr, War, <laughs> what is it good for? I don't quite do it right, do I? Last week we learned a little bit about the reality of war. We began there. We saw that one year out of every 13 years of history has been a year of peace. So that only 8% of world history has been peaceful. We saw wars that were in the Bible. We then looked at James and saw some of the reasons for war, why it exists. And we even talked about the remedy for war in part last week. We saw, we discovered that the answer isn't a song about peace or a bumper sticker about peace or a peace palace. The answer is a peace person, the Prince of Peace. And when he returns and only then will there be peace. No wonder John cried out in Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It is then and only then as we saw last time, that Isaiah 2 will be fulfilled. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither will they learn to make war anymore. But what do we do until then? Until Jesus returns, until the kingdom is established, what are we to do? How are we to live in a fallen world? It is estimated that the military spending globally per year amounts to $3,591,324 every minute of every day. Another source said that the world's Budget on arms spent every year averages out to be $745 per person of everyone alive on the planet. And so we need some kind of response to that reality. What is our response? There are one of three responses. I'm going to principally talk about the third, actually all of them, but mostly the third. Response number one is total pacifism that says you never address evil with another evil. Um, war is always wrong simply because God said in the Old Testament, thou shalt not kill. 
Position number two is activism. It says we should fight and be engaged in every war of any government because of the mandate in Romans 13 to be subject to governing authorities because God has established them and whoever resists the authorities is actually resisting God. There's a third. It's the just war or what you might call, since you have pacifism, activism, this would be selectivism. It says war is bad. It's evil. It's wrong. And not every war that a government fights is to be supported, i.e., Nazi Germany and Hitler's pogroms across Europe, especially involving the Jews and his takeover. But there are times in history, there are selective times when we must rise up and a nation must go to war, either A, in self-defense, or B, to stand against some greater evil. Now, you, you should know, as we struggle through this tonight, that we're not the only ones, that in fact the early church struggled with the whole issue of the Roman Empire and should we be involved in the Roman wars for our city, for our nation, for our empire. How do we follow the Prince of Peace, they asked, and go to war? They struggled with it, as some of us do. I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23. That's where we'll begin. We're going to look at three passages tonight principally. And uh, the study's pretty forthright. We're going to look at the case for the just war and some concerns regarding it. 1 Samuel 23 is noteworthy. We're told, then they told David saying, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we're afraid here in Judah. We have enough problems at home, in other words. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? So David inquired of the Lord once again, The Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hands. For the last 1,600 years, the dominant view, not the total view, not the only view, but the the dominant view in the Christian world toward war has been what we have termed the just war. The just war. I want to give you a little background on it. Up until about the 4th century, by and large the Christian community in the Roman Empire did not get involved militarily. And often that is brought up. Say, see, the early church didn't do it. But you should know why they didn't do it. They didn't do it not just because they wanted peace, but they didn't do it because to be in the Roman army necessitated involvement in all sorts of idolatrous practices that were mandatory for any Roman soldier so that to become involved militarily in the Roman army was tantamount to apostatizing from the Christian faith. And that was the big reason it wasn't done. Around the 4th century and afterwards, the whole idea of involvement of a just war came about. It was first talked about by Augustine, who was one of the great early thinkers of the church And uh, later on, it was expanded by Thomas Aquinas, who said, uh, war is permissible, but there are three conditions. And I'll bring those up in just a minute. 
But the reason Augustine talked about a just war was for this reason. After the barbarians sacked Rome, Rome blamed the Christians because of their non-involvement in civic issues and military issues, saying the Christians are helping to undermine the Roman government because they sit around and get the benefits, but they are not involved in any of our civic issues or our military wars. So, to counteract that, Augustine wrote several papers and writings, one even his most famous, The City of God, in which he explained that military involvement under certain conditions was good and even righteous. I mentioned Thomas Aquinas. He wrote Summa Theologica, where he said war is permissible, but as I said, there has to be three criteria that are met. Well, as time went on, other theologians, leaders weighed in on it. John Calvin endorsed a just war. So did Martin Luther. In fact, Martin Luther said, Without armaments, peace cannot be kept. Wars are waged not only to repel injustice, but also to establish a firm peace. Now listen to his explanation. Violent means must sometimes be used to preserve the life and the health of the body politic, said Luther, just as a physician must at times amputate an arm or a leg in order that the whole body may not perish. And this can be a work of Christian love said Martin Luther. Now today, most governments, and I say most, and I can't tell you which ones they are all necessarily, but most nations, including our own, believe in this just war theory. And since Thomas Aquinas' time and Augustine's time, it has been expanded and defined from just three reasons to go to war to seven. Seven criteria must be met for a just war. Here they are. Number one, It has to have a just cause, a just cause. In other words, one nation can't fight another nation unless they deserve it. There has to be some deserving reason to establish justice or to remedy an injustice. So it has to have a just cause. Number two, it must have a just intention, a just intention. In other words, not revenge, not total conquest, but to secure a lasting peace for all involved. Number three, it has to be a last resort. After negotiations have been tried and failed, it is then determined to be the only resort, the last resort. Number four, it has to have a formal declaration. A formal declaration. It is the prerogatives of governments to go to war, not an individual standing on the street corner, I wage war or some group of thugs or a gang. It has to be a formal government, a formal declaration. Number five, it needs limited objectives. Limited objectives. So the objective wouldn't be the total destruction of the people, the total destruction of the assets, the total destruction of the economy. It has to have a limited objective. Number six, proportional means. Proportional means. That is, force is limited to overturn injustice and secure peace. That is how far it will go, as much as possible. Number seven, non-combatant immunity. That's just a fancy term to say that if there are POWs or innocent civilians, non-participating civilians, they should be immune from the attack. 
Now that, that's the seven postulates of the just war theory, followed by many nations, including our own. It started by Augustine, expanded by Thomas Aquinas, and expanded still later on. Now, we opened up to 1 Samuel 23. And by the way, uh, these are things that are hoped for. Everybody makes mistakes in any kind of endeavor, including a war. But if, if you look in chapter 23 at verse 2, God is saying something to David. He's giving David an order to attack. I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. He said attack, but notice, and save Keilah. The word in Hebrew is yasa, to liberate by defending the innocence. That's what it means. Yasa, attack in order that you might save. So, David, go and fight a just war. Why? Because an aggressive, oppressing nation, the Philistines, were going and robbing the threshing floors, oppressing the people, and David was sent by God to protect them and to free them. We mentioned last week Abraham. Probably the very first time we see a war being waged, certainly the first time war is mentioned in the Bible, is in context of Abraham defending Lot, who was taken captive, and he brings his army into it and fights in this battle. Joshua, as they entered into the Promised Land, was God's appointed rod of chastisement against the Canaanites, God said. Here David is told to wage war. Back a few books is the book of Judges. The word Judges, Shofetim. Judges were warriors. They were deliverers. Usually sent to protect tribal areas of the country. In fact, in Judges 2 it says, They were greatly distressed, and the Lord raised up Shofetim, judges, who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And we know who some of them are. Gideon, Samson, Deborah, Barak, and others. In fact, when we come to the New Testament, we find the New Testament doesn't say they were all bad and wrong and immoral, but commends them for their acts of faith in military duty. Hebrews 11 says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, and turned to flight the armies of the aliens and were slain with the sword. So you have the New Testament exonerating their faithful behavior in these just wars. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, we find that military personnel are treated with respect. Uh, That never are soldiers told automatically to resign from their post once they come to Christ. I'm going to give you three examples. One is the time when John the Baptist is by the Jordan River. He's baptizing everybody. And, and you know, he was a fiery guy. He'd say, bring forth fruit, befitting repentance. And there were different people from different walks of life who wanted to have John apply that specifically to them. What does that mean to us, they would say. And one group was a group of soldiers. And so they said, well, what about us? And this is what John told them. Do not intimidate anyone, nor accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. 
It's very important to tell somebody in the military, especially in those days who didn't make peanuts, be content with your wages. Notice John didn't say, now wait a minute. If you're truly repentant, you'll leave the military, go AWOL, and join my team. No. Be content with your wages. Don't intimidate anybody. Don't accuse anybody falsely. Incident number two is when Jesus meets a centurion, a Roman officer in the Roman legion. And this Roman centurion has a servant who is sick at home. And Jesus is on the way to his house. And the guy says, now, wait a minute. I'm a man of authority and I'm a man under authority. I can say to somebody, go, and he goes, come, and he comes. So I know what authority is. And I know that you, Jesus, have such authority that you could speak the word and my servant would be healed right now. Remember what Jesus said? He lifted his faith up and said, I haven't found so great a faith even in all of Israel. He didn't say, well, you Roman soldier military creep. You shouldn't be fighting wars. He said, wow, you're a man of great faith. And the servant was healed. The third is in Acts chapter 10. There's a guy by the name of Cornelius, a centurion, and we even know his regiment, the Italian regiment. And uh, here's the description of him. Listen to the Bible's account. In Acts 10, it says, he was a devout man one who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously, and he prayed to God always. And an angel appeared to him and said, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have come up before God as a memorial. And Peter was sent to witness to him and lead him to Christ, and he did. But there's no record that he left the Italian regiment. There's evidence more that he stayed a centurion. So it's clear from the Old Testament and the New Testament that military involvement or even action was never forbidden. Now, I, uh, I notice in every war, protesters that protest the war. And, and let me just tell you, here, I'll go on record. I hate war. Who, who loves it? Nobody loves it. It's a horrible blight and a result of fallen humanity. But there's war protesters that even now go out and assemble and they protest the war and yell and carry their placards and clergymen. And listen, I defend their right to speak and say whatever they want to. They can speak out, but so can I. And it's interesting that these peaceful protesters require police to guard them. Now, wait. The FBI told me this week that in a local peace protest, somebody, a peace protester, brought a handmade grenade and threw it at the police. So how do you fight wars? With war in the name of peace? In the 1800s, a British philosopher, John Stuart Mill, said, quote, War is an ugly thing, but it is not the ugliest of things. A man who has nothing for which he is willing to fight, nothing he cares about more than his own safety, is a miserable creature and has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. I would agree with that. And I think the Bible would agree with that. There were certain times when God required His people to step up to the plate and defend those who were being victimized. 
And that's the case for the just war, theologically, biblically. But there are some concerns regarding the just war. And uh, the pacifists would say it's always wrong to injure other human beings, no matter what the circumstances. And that invading another nation is tantamount to cultural chauvinism. We have no right to go in there. We have no right to do that. And some of them will even cite scripture. And so I want to cite some of the scriptures that are cited. So not that you can cite back, but so you'll know. And... Because there are so many, I just want to ferret it down to two, Old Testament and New Testament. The laws of love that are in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament, and the words specifically of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. To love one's neighbor as oneself, and even to love one's enemies, is not merely an Old Testament commandment, a New Testament commandment. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I hear people all the time say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, the God of the New Testament. What Bible do you read? In Leviticus 19, God says, Old Testament, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, now we have a problem, don't we? Some would say, how do you love your neighbor and take up arms against him? How do you do that? Also, there's the sixth commandment, Exodus 20:13. God says, Thou shalt not kill. Well, how, how do we do that? How do you, Thou shalt not kill, love your neighbor as yourself. And then a few chapters later, God writes a whole chapter, Deuteronomy 20, on wars of, uh, laws of engagement for a war. Same God, same section. Here's why, because... The word kill is the Hebrew word ratzach, which means murder, and more specifically refers to unauthorized killing. Unauthorized killing. Now that's an important distinction to make. That's why you can have God saying, Thou shalt not kill, murder, unauthorized killing, and at the same time mandate both capital punishment and just wars and give rules that His people follow for engaging in those battles. We, we should keep those separate. In fact, listen to this. I'm not going to have you turn to it, but this is a 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5. King David speaking. He would know. He fought a lot of these battles. Some just, some not, but he fought them. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5. David says, You know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasah, the son of Jether, whom he killed. Listen. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, but put the blood of war on his belt, belt that was around his waist, and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom, he says to Solomon, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. In other words, here's a guy who didn't just fight battles, but on his own took vengeance and shed the blood of war during times of peace. And he's guilty of that, and the law requires that at his hand. Why? Simply because there's a difference between personal murder and national war. Because righteously administered judicial war is never considered murder in the Bible. That's why. In fact, part of loving people, is it not? Isn't part of loving people protecting people? 
helping people who are victimized, defending them like we read here in 1 Samuel 23, David in this town, Keilah. Philosopher Jacques Ellul um, indicted the church for not speaking up during the time of Hitler. Now just go back a few years in your history. Not that long ago. When a dictator arose in Europe and there were lots of people saying, leave him alone, it's cultural chauvinism to show up on his doorstep, to make havoc, to wreak havoc, leave it alone. And this philosopher said, after 1937 it was too late. The fate of the world was already sealed. But in those years, the Christians, full of good intentions, were thinking only of peace and loudly proclaiming pacifism In matters of that kind, Christians' good intentions are often disastrous. Now, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus Christ's own words and life. And much of what a pacifist will tell you if he says he's a Christian pacifist, and by the way, they have the right to be such, Uh, They have the right to be protected as such and to voice their opinion as you do yours and I do mine. And it's not about that. It's not about our opinion. or It's about what does the Bible say. And uh, often what Jesus says is quoted. For instance, this scripture is often brought up, Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the old Lex Talionis law. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. In other words, they will tell you, whenever you encounter evil in the world, don't respond with worldly methods including war. Now, by the way, it was the passage that we just read that Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy used to base his book War and Peace Upon largely. Leo Tolstoy was a total pacifist, called for the elimination of the military and and the elimination of the police in any culture, the elimination of courts of law and prosecuting criminals. Why? Because that's a force that resists evil in society. And since police also resist evil in society, Jesus said don't resist an evil person. You shouldn't even have police or judges or courts. Now, if you did that, that's tantamount to giving a permission slip to a thug or a group of thugs to do whatever they want. But a pacifist will say, well, we ought to follow Jesus' example. I mean, he he was non-resistant. He even went to the cross, right? He was in the garden and Peter took out a what? Sword. And Jesus said, hey, put the sword away. Whoever lives by the sword dies by the sword. Don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels? And they'll say, see, Jesus didn't do that. So he followed this non-combatant philosophy and let himself be victimized all the way to the cross. I'd say two things to that. Number one, Jesus also said, before I sent you out without a money bag, now get a money bag, now get a knapsack, and if you don't have a sword, sell a garment and buy one. It was the Makarion sword 
a sword put in the vest for self-defense as travelers would go out on journeys. Number two, I would say it is arrogant to say that we should do everything Jesus did. I know the bracelets say, what would Jesus do? But here's one area they're wrong in. The reason Jesus was this non-combatant, submissive servant at the cross is because he came to die for the sins of the world. It was atonement. He didn't die in a Roman war. He died willingly, right? He said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. So he came and offered his life as an atonement for the sins of the world. Well, then the question remains, what did Jesus mean here on the Sermon on the Mount? When he says very plainly in verse 39, but don't resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn also the other to him also. What Jesus was talking about quite plainly was personal retaliation when you're insulted. In Jewish thinking, to slap somebody on the cheek is to give them the great insult. That's not a war. The point is personal retaliation. Jesus isn't even dealing with national, judicial, formal declaration of war or defending the helpless. In fact, Jesus said, Greater love is no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. He was speaking of himself and the ultimate sacrifice, but the principle remains that when you are willing to lay down your life, sacrifice your life for the freedom of other people, that is the ultimate act of unselfish love. The great thinker whom I respect and have read largely, Francis Schaeffer, said, quote, I am not a pacifist because pacifism in this fallen world in which we live means we desert the people that deserve our greatest help. Okay, let's get out of that realm for a minute. Let's make it simple. Let's take pacifism into personal means. You're walking down the street. You see a big, burly thug, a bad man, beating up a little helpless girl. What do you do? Well, we negotiate. Okay. So you go over to him. Please stop. You plead with him to stop. And he refuses to do so. Question, what does love mean at that point? What does love mean at that point? Who are you going to love? What's the best way to show love at that point? Walk away? Desert the helpless little girl to the thug? No. Love means you will stop him at all costs, even if it means by force. Because you are loving her. You are loving your neighbor as yourself. Listen, a sin of omission can be just as great as the sin of commission. To turn your eyes and walk away from those who are helpless, that's what brought David's prayer in 1 Samuel 23. God, you see what's happening. Should we do something? And he did. There's one final passage I want you to turn to to sort of put it all into balance. Just tie a a ribbon on it. Turn to Romans chapter 12. The end of Romans 12, beginning of Romans 13. Let's see how it all works together. We have the ideal and the real right next to each other. Makes it easy. Verse 17 of chapter 12. Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Notice this. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, 
Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now you notice those words, if it is possible. You know why they're there? Because it's not always possible to have peace with every person in a fallen world. Just look at your own lives. I mean, look at our lives, the friends we have, the contacts we make, business associates, husbands and wives. As much as is possible. It's not always possible. Especially when there's an evil bully or an evil nation like in David's time. Then in verse 19, notice the word yourselves. Do not avenge yourselves. In other words, you don't have the right personally to get involved in exact vengeance on another person but rather give place to wrath. How? It is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, vengeance belongs to God. God says that He will repay. How will He do it? Now go into Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. You'll have praise of the same. For he is God's minister. Think about that verse next time you're pulled over. (laughs) The guy walks up to the car, arms on the hip, walks over, looks at you. Can I see your license? Just remember you're looking at God's minister. Remember that when it's tax time. God's minister. But if you do evil, be afraid. Now, I want you to look at the next phrase. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. You know what a sword was in those days? An instrument of death. It was carried by Roman rulers. Every time a new governor was sworn in, he was given a symbolic sword, meaning you have a right in this province to exact capital punishment for the Roman government. And Paul says, let me tell you something. These guys in that kind of authority are God's ministers to what? Avenge. Now, don't revenge. God will avenge. How will he avenge? Sometimes he'll do it by the state. Sometimes either in the court of law, a prison system. In those days, capital punishment. Or a just war. Here's the bottom line. War is ugly. Nobody likes it. But it is the inevitable consequence of a race fallen from the image of God. The image is now marred. There's a number of reasons for it. And wars are unjustified unless they are sent to establish peace. And if they are, I would agree with Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin and all the rest, including the Old and the New Testament, that there are times to wage it should try to get along with everybody. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's impossible. And sometimes you need to use the, the rule of force to enforce peace when the thug won't stop, when negotiations don't work. It's like, okay, now I'm going to do everything I can to stop you. We not only have the right, we have the mandate out of love to our neighbor. 
It's not just about us and, oh, it's going to upset our economy and my peace is now messed up and now my investments. That's not the issue. The issue is loving your neighbor as yourself. And so we submit it all, do we not, into the hands of God and pray and ask God to bring a quick end to the war and give leaders wisdom and protect our troops, bring them back. Tom Allen tells a story of a bowl of red delicious apples. This is at Asbury Seminary, back east, theological school. In the cafeteria line was a bowl of red delicious apples with a sign on it. Just take one, please. God is watching. Well, some prankster saw that, and at the other end of the line where the peanut butter cookies were, he put up another sign. Take all that you want. God's busy watching the apples. (laughs) We laugh at that because we know that's not true. We know that God can see the cookies as well as the apples. In fact, we could as well if we were in the line. But certainly God can. And the point I want to make is, is that God is watching not only us in church in the United States or listening in our cars or watching the war on television. God is also in the Middle East. Watching, present, aware, knowing. And we need to pray that they will experience an intervention of God in that place. It's great to remember that at a time of war. Nothing limits Him. Heavenly Father... That song, what is it good for, when it refers to war, must be answered that though war is ugly, sometimes it does bring good when it resists the greater evil. And when there are those who have the intention to harm, to destroy, to kill, to maim, when there is a history of such, when negotiations have failed, when ultimatums have been disregarded, that there sometimes is a time to rise up and to fight so that something worse would be averted and avoided. Lord, we pray that You'd strengthen us during this time. Help us not to waver. Help our knees to be firm as we stand for You, stand for truth. And help us to realize, Lord, whether it's a time of peace or a time of war, whether it's one of those one out of 13 years or 13 years of war. Either way, Lord, Your Gospel can still be preached, people can still be saved, and You can be glorified in our personal lives. So, Lord, help us to do that even during this time. Help us to be strong, encouraging, And we pray for those men and women, Lord, that are over fighting this war. Keep them, Lord. Bring them back safely. May evil be overturned. And Father, we pray that the ultimate would be that these countries would be open so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be freely proclaimed because, after all, it is the only means by which we can be saved. There is no other name. That's worth living for and dying for. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.